This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode six, Powell's Pending Plunge, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Dan Creeder, Ben Reitzes, and John Hill from our Thick Macro Strategy team, along with Michael Gregory from BMO Economics to bring you our thoughts on the pending rate cuts. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. The outlook has dimmed, labor markets hushed, inflation expectations have found their seats, and the stage is now set for the debut of Powell's first cut. This summer promises to be an inflection point for monetary policy, and we're offering three monetary policy scenarios along with their respective impacts on rates, spreads, and FX. Our three scenarios are, one, a 25 basis point preemptive cut, two, a more aggressive 50 basis point ease, and three, no change to policy, otherwise known as the wait and hope strategy. Before we get into each scenario, Ian, what is your base case for monetary policy and how does proximity to the zero bound impact this? Our baseline assumption at this point is that the Fed moves 25 basis points, whether that ends up being in July or later in the year, it will be the beginning of a campaign comparable to what we saw in the 90s. And by that, I mean simply followed up by another 25 or two 25 basis point rate cuts. That's priced into the market, very consistent with this notion of delivering something preemptive or to get in front of any significant slowdown. In terms of what the market prices in, however, the market isn't going to price in just 75 basis points in aggregate of rate cuts. Once we get the first one, the market will very quickly have in its sight the zero bound. And that's when conversations about will the Fed need to to cut that far, what does that mean for the curve? Are we going to see another episode of QE in the short term? Those will become far more topical at that point. So basically, Ian, the Fed really lacks the luxury of time this close to the zero bound. Now, John, I'd like to to turn to you a little bit. Ian mentioned our base case of an initial 25 basis point ease, followed by additional cuts. Do you think that the trade war coupled with lowflation and the disappointing May employment report is enough to fundamentally change the Fed's outlook for the economy, or will they be able to actually characterize this as a preemptive rate cut? Well, either way, they're certainly going to try to characterize it more as a preemptive or stabilization style cut. Of course, right now, the Fed is sitting there with a significantly less policy space than they've had in prior cycles. For context, over the past several cycles, When the economy is moving into a recessionary period, the Fed tends to cut by a rule of thumb 500 basis points. They don't have that luxury this time around. So instead, 
they have to try to convince the market that not only do they have less firepower to respond this time around, but they're going to be able to extend the cycle further out than they otherwise would have. In general, I'm skeptical of their ability to do this, to in essence pull off a soft landing, if you will. And my base case would be, yes, we probably go through a series of stabilization cuts, but eventually this gives way to a return to the effect of lower bound and more discussions of QE. That probably is not a 2019 story, but something to be on the radar when thinking about how things will evolve over the coming years. So you basically think they're in front of the problem? I think they're trying to be in front of the problem. It's an ongoing question as to whether the underlying geopolitical situation has led to uncertainty sufficient to move into a recession. I think if you're Powell and you see the risk-reward payoff of easing at this moment, you don't see a lot of upside inflationary pressure, you're running the risk of inflating some asset price excesses, but at least by trying to get ahead of something, you might be able to prolong the cycle. That being said, I would remind everyone that we're already in the longest cycle since World War II. To try to prolong it from here is likely going to be increasingly difficult. Well, thanks, John. Speaking of the economic cycle, let's turn to Michael Gregory from BMO Economics. Michael, tariffs are likely to slow growth, but also generate inflation. How will the Fed reconcile these forces? Thanks, Margaret. And as you point out, tariffs are potentially stagflationary. They are a headwind for growth and a potential tailwind for inflation. That presents a dilemma for central banks, which way to steer policy. However, for the Fed, because of the chronic underperformance of core inflation relative to the symmetric 2% target, the Fed has afforded the luxury of focusing solely on the growth-sapping consequences of tariffs, hence our base case for a couple of rate cuts in the second half of the year. To put this chronic underperformance into context, we have not seen a core PCE inflation print above 2.1% in more than a decade, and in about 80% of the cases, it's been under 1.9%. So much for symmetry. And in fact, giving the Fed even more confidence that they don't have to focus on the uh, inflation consequences of tariffs is the fact that this underperformance has persisted deep into the business cycle when we've been pushing full employment and sporting a positive output gap. This emphasizes that the secular forces of disinflation, such as demographics and technology-enabled disruption, are doing an adequate job in checking the cyclical inflation pressures. And in fact, they'll probably do an adequate job in checking any potential inflationary pressures coming from tariffs. So it'll end up being a a one-time increase in uh, prices, unfortunately a hit to welfare, but nevertheless, it does provide a green light for the Fed to cut rates in the face of these risks to economic growth. Now that we've framed up our base case and characterization of the FOMC, let's examine our three scenarios. The first scenario is a 25 basis point cut, and the rates market is already pricing more than this. Ian and John, I'd like to turn back to you. How do you think U.S. rates and the curve respond to a first cut of 25 basis points? Well, a first cut of 25 basis points is very consistent with a cyclical re-steepening of the yield curve that we have anticipated would be this year's big trade. So twos, tens will push beyond 35 basis points as the front end of the curve rallies well through effective Fed funds. The big question that John and I have been debating is, 
in such an environment, what happens to 10-year yields? Are 10-year yields comfortably anchored above 2%, or do they drift significantly lower well into the one-handle territory? And like any good wannabe economist, I guess I would answer both it depends and both. What I would expect to happen is the Fed starting a 25 basis point cut indicates to investors and financial markets that the Fed is willing to step in and support the economy as they deem appropriate. What I would expect this to lead to is the possibility of a little bit more inflation into the market via break-even pricing. Maybe this pushes tens a little bit higher into the twos temporarily before the realization that additional cuts are coming. At that point, we see tens inflect lower and we start to talk about a one-handle more seriously. And that all ultimately comes down to timing. And as we think about the course of the next quarter or two, there will be this period in which the market truly believes that the Fed has been able to orchestrate a soft landing. And so while we will price in more than 75 basis points of rate cuts, the assumption will be that the Fed's actions will stimulate enough inflation that investors need additional compensation to go further out the curve. And right now, stimulating more inflation would just be pushing up back up towards 2%, looking at 5 and 10-year break-evens. They sit well below to, you could see, 20, 30 basis points of inflation pricing go back into 5s and 10s. That's a little bit more of an optimistic scenario, but gives a little bit of a ballpark for the type of repricing that is at least theoretically possible. So the market's currently pricing about 75 basis points. We think the Fed is going to give the market what the market wants, but we think ultimately it won't be enough. Is that a correct characterization? Yep, that's spot on, Margaret. All right, let's turn to Ben Reitz's on Canada. Ben, how do you think the Bank of Canada will react in the event that the Fed begins an easing cycle? Thank you, Margaret. In the case of a 25 basis point rate cut, the Bank of Canada would likely be a little bit more cautious with respect to easing policy. The starting point for Canadian monetary policy is, is, is quite different than where we are in the U.S. Policy rates are already below neutral. They're negative in real terms, and policymakers have already characterized it as stimulative. And so moving rates down further, there's a much higher bar to do that in Canada right now than in the U.S. Uh, the Canadian economy is also in a very different place than the U.S. economy. Uh, we've seen weaker growth at the turn of the year in Canada, very weak fourth quarter, very weak first quarter. And the data are rebounding right now. So we've seen the economy do a little bit better in March, and we expect the second quarter uh, to show a nice rebound after that softness. While the second half, though, is, is, is much more uncertain, the, the near-term data are likely to be pretty good in Canada. While we don't believe the Bank of Canada will likely immediately follow suit if the Fed starts with a 25 basis point rate cut, the market will likely get ahead of the curve on this one. And uh, I'd expect to see Canadian bond yields follow Treasuries lower right across the curve. The Canadian curve will likely bull steepen as well. Uh, and, and, and that'll be on expectations of, of further Fed moves. And uh, there is a limit to how long the Bank of Canada can wait before following the Fed. We think they could probably wait at least 50 basis points and maybe 75 basis points uh, of Fed cuts before having to match further Fed moves on that front. Thanks, Ben. Greg Anderson, I'd like to bring you into the conversation now. So if the Fed cuts by 25 basis points in July, as priced in by money markets, does the U.S. dollar even react at that juncture? Well, Margaret, based on the uh, international experience as well as U.S. experience, 
Yeah, I think you would see a small reaction, call it a, a follow-through impact for the first move of the cycle at least. But I don't think it would be very large, maybe something in the order of uh, a half a percent on the knee jerk. And I think where the market would trade that most is, is simply just in, in euro dollar and in dollar yen, the big liquid exchange rates. But also, those are the two currency pairs where you have correlations with the interest rate differentials. And then you have central banks on the other side that cannot cut in response to the Fed cutting as, as the Fed uh, goes further and further into the cycle. And so that's where uh, U.S. dollar weakness would probably show up the most. Uh, thanks, Greg. Turning now to spreads. Dan Creeder, how do high-grade spreads respond in this environment? Well, to answer that question, I think we have to look at how spreads have performed in the last two Fed easing cycles. And what we've seen is that spreads typically tighten or, or at the worst, stay pretty flat right up until the Fed uh, embarks on an easing campaign alongside the end of the economic cycle. And that's what we've seen so far. Spreads have continued to be uh, very narrow for the majority of the year, even as Fed hikes were priced out and then Fed cuts were priced in. Now, the possibility of a 25 basis point insurance cut, or whatever you want to call it, is a little hard to interpret because there is the thought that the Fed will cut rates even without a fundamental change in their outlook. It could just be for insurance. In that case, the market might think there's a chance the Fed's going to actually extend the economic cycle a little bit. But of course, a cut also implies that the economic cycle might be over. So in, in, the, in the insurance cut scenario, the primary effect I think we'd see is spread decompression. I think high-quality spreads, SSAs and agencies, would continue to hold in on the possibility that the economic cycle is prolonged a little bit. But reflecting the risk that the economic cycle is over, you should see higher beta names start to widen, not reaching their wides that, that would come following clarity that the economic cycle is over, but start to widen at least a little bit off of uh, you know, very low levels now, reflecting some possibility that the cycle is over. And Dan, how do you think the composition of ratings in the high-grade index will make this experience different than past experiences with regard to spreads? Yeah, it's a very good point, Margaret. I I mean, this time around, there there seems to be a a large degree of weakness in the corporate market, both from a a debt burden perspective as well as just a lower aggregate rating. So I, I think this time we would see you know, a more severe widening in corporate spreads, particularly than we've expected in the past. Um, maybe not quite as wide as, as we got during the, the peak of the financial crisis, but, but wider than the 2000-2001 experience, wider than we might expect from a garden variety recession, because there's a lot of risk baked into, into the corporate market, and no one really knows how to quantify just how much default rates will come up, downgrades uh, will increase after a decade of extremely accommodative global monetary policy that, that has resulted in an untold number of corporations in business that maybe shouldn't be. All right. Thanks, Dan. Our second scenario is an initial cut of 50 basis points. Essentially, the house is on fire. In this scenario, the business cycle has turned, data has worsened, risk assets continue to underperform, financial conditions tighten, and the Fed needs to move rapidly out of restricted territory. Uh, Turning back to the U.S. rates team, Ian and John, how do you think the market reacts to a 50 basis point initial cut? Well, a 50 basis point initial cut would certainly exaggerate the price action that we've already outlined, i.e. the steepening of the curve with the potential for 10 and 30 year yields to drop rather significantly. What will be interesting to see is 
the way in which financial conditions are actually tightened that triggered the Fed to move 50 basis points. I could envision a situation comparable to what we saw in December, January, where equity market volatility spikes because there's a significant correction in stocks that leads to the first leg of a flight to quality to treasuries. Then the Fed responding to these tighter financial conditions, doubles down on the size of the rate cut, and that pushes the overall rate complex to a lower plateau with an even steeper curve. Yeah, and for some context there, I agree with you 100%. And pretty quickly in that scenario with aggressively tightening financial conditions, we're not talking about one-handle treasuries. We're going to talk about cutting to the effect of lower bound or return below 1%. So for some context, in 2007, this was before the financial crisis even, the Fed right now has 225 basis points to lower the target range until it's back to zero to 25 basis points. In 2007, that took about four and a half months for them to drop that far that fast. So it really will depend a lot on the macro environment. But if we are in one of those houses on fire worlds, the Fed has shown it's willing and able to act at least to the extent possible we could be looking at hitting the effective lower bound in relatively short order and then start talking about a QE program. So, John, you mentioned a QE program. How does the rising probability of QE in this scenario truncate longer end yields? That's a great question, Margaret. And one way that I've been thinking about how it plays out is it kind of caps how far the cyclical re-steepening can play. Traditionally, as we go into a rate cut cycle, we would expect twos, tens, and five thirties to steepen. The expectation that after we hit the zero lower bound, an asset purchase program might be coming will limit the amount of upside and probably help to keep tens and possibly thirties below 2%. All right. Thanks, John. Turning to Ben Reitz's, if the house is on fire in the U.S. and the Fed cuts 50 basis points, what do you think the Bank of Canada does? Well, Margaret, if the U.S. economy is rolling over and uh, things are weakening substantially and the Fed ends up cutting 50 basis points, I think the, the response from the Bank of Canada is is unambiguous here, and, and they will be following suit and cutting rates. Now, whether the initial move is 50 or, or 25 beeps from the Bank of Canada, now is not the time to debate that, but the bank would definitely follow suit. The economy is clearly a, a very important input into their policy decisions. And again, back to the different starting point for Canada, uh, there is an output gap in Canada. And so if the outlook for growth were to weaken further, uh, and that's what you'd see if the U.S. economy were to roll over, that would imply a larger, a widening output gap in Canada. And so uh, that means lower inflation and the Bank of Canada would then have to uh, follow suit. In addition to that, a weakening U.S. economy likely means a weaker global backdrop as well. And uh, that what goes with that generally is falling oil prices. And that would be just one more reason for the Bank of Canada to be easing. Depending on the depth of the downturn, uh, we could see the zero lower bound become an issue for the Bank of Canada. And that would mean the bank would have to turn to unconventional policy tools that were largely avoided during the 2008-2009 crisis. Uh, looking at the market moves, uh, interest rates would be lower right across the curve in Canada, uh, no doubt about that. And, and, and the, the curve would bull steepen aggressively as the front end would be hunting for how quickly policy can hit zero lower bound. I think to reinforce the, the, the differences on the economic side, uh, if, you, if you look at the, the elevated household indebtedness levels in Canada, uh, they are sitting at extreme levels. We got the latest numbers uh, on Thursday, and they showed 
a slight pullback in debt levels, debt to income ratios, but they're still close to record highs. And what that reflects is, is a very high level of vulnerability for the Canadian economy. And when the next downturn comes, whenever that is, we expect the, the Canadian economy to underperform relative to the U.S. because of those high indebtedness levels. And that just reinforces the need for the Bank of Canada to be moving rates lower. Let's bring Greg back into the conversation. What does the U.S. dollar do if the Fed cuts 50 basis points? For most currencies, if you cut 25, your currency weakens a little. If you cut 50, it weakens more. But I think the answer is a little more nuanced for the U.S. dollar because it's the global numerera. So actually, a 50 basis point cut, or you know, better put, the situation that requires a 50 basis point cut, would likely cause the dollar to appreciate uh, against emerging market currencies. So particularly the, the highly uh, liquid and, and volatile uh, EM currencies like Max and Czar, I, I would expect them to weaken off considerably. And on the, uh, the plus side, uh, Japanese yen would probably surge from a combination of risk aversion uh, and fight it to quality into the yen, as well as the narrowing interest rate differential between uh, the U.S. and Japan. So if, with, if it's 50 basis points, the trade is buy yen and sell EM. Thanks, Greg. So, Dan, we're outlining a pretty dire situation with a, a first rate cut of 50 basis points followed by an aggressive Fed. How would high-grade spreads react in this environment? So in this environment, I think it removes the uncertainty in the market immediately prices the end of the economic cycle. And so what does that mean? I think that that means we can expect across the board widening in spreads for all products and severe underperformance for uh, spread products with higher beta. We talked earlier about how, how there's particular weakness in the corporate market this time around, and I think we'd see uh, significant underperformance of corporates. It's also important to note here that looking back at previous episodes, it's actually surprising the duration of, of spread weakness. It typically spreads continue to exhibit weakness and keep widening alongside FET rate cuts until the Fed sort of reaches the, the bottom or the economy starts to turn a little bit. In effect, spreads continue to be weak until we know the extent of the contagion, until we know for you know to some degree of certainty that that those who are still in business are going to remain that way. So in response to a 50 basis point rate cut, I'd expect significant immediate underperformance and then kind of a, a you know continued weakness for the course of the next three to six months until you start to see some signs of stability in the economy. The only caveat there would be that there's increasing evidence that some of the very high quality spreads like SSAs, uh, agencies and things of that nature are increasingly exhibiting flight to quality type behavior. We would still see spread widening in those asset classes as well, but the, the spread widening would be much less and probably not last quite as long. So following a 50 basis point rate cut, I'd look to be you know underweight spreads for say three, five months, and then look at that as a buying opportunity for the highest quality sectors while still underweighting corporates. Dan, how about swap spreads? Well, the first order impact on swap spreads would be the expectation that LIBOR should go much wider, especially in response to a 50 basis point cut. Uh, we should see some pricing it of credit concerns, so that should push swap spreads wider in the near term. Long term, uh, lower rates typically imply lower swap spreads, and that's particularly true this time around given heavy treasury issuance and what would likely be even heavier treasury issuance in response to a recession. So I think that the knee jerk there would be wider swap spreads, but then looking to uh, get, get short spreads after the Fed has cut rates a few times. 
Thanks, Dan. Our third and final scenario is no cut. The Fed remains on hold, otherwise known as the wait and hope strategy. In this strategy, the Fed would message that they need more time to see the data evolve. Specifically, they would like to see if inflation begins to move toward the 2% target on the back of the recent pause in rate hikes. One justification for this may be the expected inflationary impulse from the tariffs. Ian and John, I'd like to turn back to you now. Would the market interpret this as a policy mistake? I think that's the biggest risk is the classic policy error trade. In this scenario, I would expect the curve to push a bit flatter. As there is a broader grab for duration, the expectation being that if the Fed doesn't cut soon, when they eventually do ease, the rate cuts will be much larger. One place in that scenario I'd be watching closely is inflation compensation. If markets do believe that the Fed is either making a policy mistake and not easing or just getting behind the eight ball, one way that that could manifest itself is not allowing the Fed to achieve its 2% mandate. Look for inflation compensation to fall from there and break evens to drift even lower. So basically, the risk of the wait and hope strategy is so high in terms of the future monetary policy response that it seems to be a low probability event. Yes, I think it's safe to characterize it as a relatively low probability. That doesn't mean that they don't skip the June-July meeting in favor of September or even later. It's simply the notion that they can't be on hold forever. And basically, ideally, they would probably like to be able to wait and see, but given proximity to the zero bound, the risks are just so much greater this time around. And I'd also point out that monetary policy has impacts with a lag. So in some ways, the Fed is trying to set monetary policy now for the economy and financial conditions six months, a year in the future, what have you. There are a variety of outstanding risks and unknowns that will be clarified over that period, but they don't have the luxury of knowing that unknown, so they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Thanks, John. Let's turn back to Ben Reitz's. A long pause is consistent with the Bank of Canada's current projections. How would a continued hold impact Canadian rates? In the long pause scenario for the Fed, the Bank of Canada would clearly be on hold as well, as that is our our, uh, forecast at the moment, even with two Fed rate cuts penciled in right now. The Bank of Canada's current projections are consistent with the long pause, and in fact, uh, the the latest that we heard from the Bank of Canada, and things have probably changed since then, but in their latest projections, I mean, they they view growth improving in 2020 and 2021, uh, and and Polaz was still optimistic about maybe moving rates higher down the road, even if that seems like a a pretty long shot bet at this point. So uh, this would, at, at a minimum, be consistent with their forecast. Uh, They look for exports to to rebound uh, after the weakness in the turn of the year and and the output gap to close in the first half of uh, 2020. This scenario has kept the Bank of Canada from discussing rate cuts at all uh, unless the domestic backdrop deteriorates. From a market perspective, if the Fed does refrain from cutting rates, uh, you're likely to see the U.S. curve uh, bear flatten in that scenario. You'll probably see a similar move in Canada, but but likely to a lesser extent as there is less easing priced into the front of the Canadian market curve in Canada is already quite flat. There's room for it to flatten further, but there are, of course, limits to that. However, with the downside risks to the outlook likely persisting, uh, we'd expect front-end rates to remain below target, as uh, some odds of a cut would likely remain. 
Uh, but don't expect the two-year point of the curve to, to continue to trade 30-plus basis points through target as they are now, uh, maybe somewhere 10 to 10, 15, 20 basis points higher than that, but still expecting some odds of a rate cut as, as again, the risk would still be on the downside, uh, maybe more so if the Fed refrains from cutting. Greg, how do you think the no-cut scenario would be different than a 25 or even a 50 basis point cut in FX markets? So I, I uh, agree with uh, Ian and John that that the market would view that as a policy mistake. And as a result, the FX market would boo, uh, so to speak, the decision. And in that case, it, it's a risk-off environment, and that's very similar, in my view, to, to cutting 50. So it's still a buy yen and a sell EM trade. And to kind of give a, a recent example of that, the market thought the Fed made a policy mistake in uh, December when uh, the Fed didn't back off of QT. And so in the three weeks between the December meeting and then when the, the Fed reversed course in, in January, yen appreciated by 6%. Dollar Canada went from 134 to 136. Aussie uh, had a similar uh, two-ish percent depreciation. And I, I think that maybe year-end exaggerated that a little bit, but on, on a knee-jerk, if the Fed uh, were not to cut in July or certainly not to cut in September, where the market had it, had it baked in, I think you'd see yen appreciate by uh, 3-ish percent. And I think you'd see the commodity G10 currencies depreciate 2-ish percent and NEM perhaps a little bit more. Um, and I'll just say that is all with the caveat that the Fed's no-cut is a policy mistake and not that it's a no-cut because somehow, amazingly, the U.S. and China have struck a deal. Thanks, Greg. I like that characterization. And Dan, I would like you to answer the credit market question in that same backdrop. Yeah, I mean, I agree with these guys that it would probably be viewed as a policy mistake, which, you know, that could result in in, in, in higher beta names, you know, unperforming. But I think that there's a, a kind of tug of war between policy mistake versus just the yield grab that, that would be prevalent in a, in a wait and wait and hope scenario. That's what we're calling it. I think that's very true in spread markets. It would spread. I think spreads would kind of, this would be the neutral, the neutral scenario. Spreads would kind of just continue to hold. Like I talked about earlier, we usually don't see meaningful spread widening until the Fed is actually cutting alongside the end of the economic cycle. So I think spreads are just con- continue to muddle along here. No real significant narrowing or widening, just playing that yield grab until further clarity on, on Fed rate cuts do come in uh, into focus. Well, thank you, Dan. And thank you to the rest of the team for your insights as well. This concludes Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 6, Powell's Pending Plunge. We're always searching for hot topics to tackle collectively. Please send us your ideas and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.